Hey listeners, welcome to Everyday Badass. My name is Megan Lahan, and I'm so excited to have you join us and listen to another one of our incredible guests. So let's meet someone interesting. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Badass in our season two that we are um, embarking on. So excited to be back with all of you. And I'm excited to share um, and introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Pam Green, and she is the president and CEO of Easter Seals, which is a phenomenal organization um, that really supports and helps those um, aging in our community, um, those with disabilities as well as veterans um, and so much more that she can get into. And um, our company has had the the pleasure of supporting and helping and um, volunteering our time. And, you know, we've just gotten used to it over the past couple of years and, and heard more information. But Pam is... So fun. Her energy, I love. She's sitting here smiling. You guys can't see, but she's just got energy oozing out of her. And um, so I'm excited for you guys all to learn um, more about Pam and her journey and especially um, more about Easter Seals. So welcome, Pam. Thanks so much, Megan. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. Thank you. And she just got to go to the Dave Matthews concert last night. So she's, we're all back into it. We're all trying to do the things, right? Get some normalcy back and some fun. Um, All right. So why don't we just get into stuff about you? Just tell us a little bit about you and your journey and kind of, you know, Pam from little Pam to now where she is today. Great, great. So I think I've had um, a fairly interesting life, maybe. Um, I was adopted. I was born in Rhode Island while my dad was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he and my mother moved to back home to Kentucky when he retired from the Navy. And um, shortly thereafter, when I was about nine years old, they split up. So I always um, would introduce myself by saying to folks, as you can tell from my accent. Yes. Um, I uh, I grew up in Paris, but I summered in London. Because my mom <laughs> is from Paris, Kentucky. My dad's from London, Kentucky. So, um, so yeah. So um, I, uh, I sort of had, uh, I think, and it sort of has shaped my career, a firsthand look uh at what divorce can sometimes do to women's um, economic situation. Sure, So my mom had dropped out of high school, Mm -hmm. and after she and my dad divorced, um, we took a big hit financially. Mm -hmm. So my mom went to work in a cafeteria at the University of Kentucky. Um, We lived in a trailer park, Mm -hmm. and um, I quickly learned that even though I was really a smart kid, um, I had to endure a lot of the social stigma of poverty. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of, uh, kind of really stuck with me. So, uh, no, I'm sorry to interject there. You know, um, this is something I also think is really prevalent when, um, and I don't know if you saw this with your, was your mom involved in like the finances and stuff with the house or was that a whole learning curve for her as well? So on top of then having to go to work, she also had to figure out how to keep you guys afloat. She had to learn how to pay the bills, how to write the checks, right? All the things. Absolutely. She'd yeah. been, a, she'd stayed home with my brothers and, um, you know, and with me up mm-hmm. until that point. And so she didn't really have any marketable job skills. She didn't have any education and yep. she was pretty much out there on her own. My mom's family's from Eastern Kentucky. You know, they were raised one holler over from Little yep. Inn. So, yeah. 
Um, so, you know, so she really, she was uh, out on her own. So. And how many of there were, I know you just mentioned brothers, how yeah. many total were in your family? So I have two older brothers and it's actually kind of a, a great part. My oldest brother is 16 years older than me mm-hmm. um, and he retired from the army. Um, my other brother was 13 years older than me. He was mm-hmm. also in the military, but um, my mother's first husband had passed away. So my mm-hmm. dad married her knowing he couldn't have kids and uh, the opportunity and they came open you. to adopt me. So yeah. my brothers are significantly older than mm-hmm. I. So. Yeah. Okay. So now mom's working in the cafeteria yeah. for the university. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I went to Transylvania University in Lexington yeah. on, a, on a scholarship. And it was uh, it was truly just a life-changing experience for I bet. me. Um, most memorable, of course, I met my husband there. Um, but also, um, you, know, you talk a little bit like about the social stigma of poverty. Well, when you're at this little school and, you know, we didn't have social media, so you can kind of leave your your past behind you. Right. And, and su- have a true, like, you rebirth, new experience. It. You yeah. got it. Kind of succeed on your own merits. Um, and it's so funny. Like, I, I pledged a sorority and I, you know, I know a lot of folks are anti-Greek, but I have to tell you, I learned so much about... Um, fitting in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and people not knowing as much about my background, mm-hmm. um, through that. And so Trancy was a great experience. And, uh, I, uh, I majored in English. I was the first graduate from, of Transylvania with a minor in women's studies, mm. um, which one of my friends here in Cincinnati, he's originally from Connecticut. And he said it must've been Southern women's studies. Cause I don't <laughs> strike him as <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I think it's a great compliment. Yeah, it's, that's exactly uh, so how you should take exactly, it. Exactly, yes. exactly. Um, and so uh, when I graduated, I had done an internship for Kelly Services, the staffing company, mm-hmm. when I was still at Trancy. Um, and I did it because it was the only paid internship. Um, but they offered me a position when I graduated, and I thought I'd do it for a couple of years and then maybe go back to grad school. And um it ended up being an amazing career. I stayed at Kelly for 13 years. Wow. I lived in some really different, I was, uh, started in Winchester, Kentucky, and then I went to Decatur, Illinois, mm-hmm. which is the soybean capital of the world. Uh-huh. And um, when I arrived there to, as it was my first management position. And so I arrived there and four of the five largest employers in town were on strike. Wow. And I was leading a temp staffing agency. So that was a, an incredible experience that really um, kind of helped shape my mm-hmm. views about work mm-hmm. and employment. Um, you know, regardless of how you feel about unions, I had like, you know, 55-year-old men coming in um that had been making incredible wages mm-hmm. that now were being offered minimum wage jobs. And just um, that loss of sense of self-worth. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was it was, it was was really formative in, yeah. in terms of um, helping me to see the role that work can play mm-hmm. and um, the positive role that work can play in people's lives. So, so wait, yeah. before we go forward, so I'm curious— did you, when you were going to Transylvania, did you know what you wanted to major in ahead of, okay. <laughs> She's no. shaking her head for Heck those of you who no. can't see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it's just so, so I, um, my oldest is um, a senior this year. Uh-huh. And so we're embarking on all the stuff and the college. And the, that's the thing I keep saying all the time is I'm like, honey, one, 
you know, nobody knows what they want to do. And if they do, great for them, but it's that's the exception, not the rule. And you're fine to figure it out as you go. And so I'm it's just something I'm always curious about when, when I talk to people is because, you know, nine times out of ten you don't, but mm-hmm. I'm curious and especially you with your background. And you said that you had a scholarship. Was it academic money, mm-hmm. I assume? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, and were you one of the first in your family to then go to college? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And um, it's interesting. My mother um, and her sibling group, um, her, child- her children were the first and only to graduate from college wow. at that time. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so then talk a little bit about women's studies. Since you were the first to really graduate with minoring in that, was it just a very small opportunity that was at Transylvania mm-hmm. at the time? What made mm-hmm. you want to pursue that when you were in college? Yeah. Um, so I have two daughters and I, and I think, um, a quote, one of the, a story about my daughter, um, kind of helps to summarize how I got to women's studies. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughters, you know, they joke that like, oh my gosh, don't even bring up Disney around my mom. She is so <laughs> anti-princess, you know, I mean, when they were little, they were just like, ah, don't get her started. Um, and then when my youngest daughter was a junior in high school, you know, they always thought that I was insane about women's issues. And when my youngest daughter was a junior in high school, she walked in and one day she'd had something happen at school. And she said, you know, mom, sexism is one of those things that you don't see until you see it. Yes. And then when you see it, you see it everywhere. You can't unsee it. Yep. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of how it was for me, you know. So I think, did you see it then, even yes. at your age? Okay, oh, yeah. When you well, were in college? Yeah, and thinking about the experience that my mother had had. Yeah. Um, I had a close friend that um, was a victim of sexual assault mm-hmm. and, you know, the things that were said because it was a date thing, a date yeah. rape thing. And um, it just really... Uh, kind of helps you to see some of the systemic and and patriarchal things that um, we all live with Mm -hmm. and uh, men and women perpetuate. Yeah. And so so I was in this little bubble at Trancy and, uh, you know, there were men that were in a a lot of my women's studies classes. And so I was never part of that, like, feminist is a bad word thing. Yeah. And so when I graduated and I got out in the world and people, I'd say, oh, yes, I'm a feminist. You know, all that means is that, you know, we want people to have the same opportunity. Right. You support and, equal rights. Right. Yeah. And people were like, ah, you know, feminist, <laughs> feminist are no. evil, men, right. men hating. And I'm like, look at me. Do I look like I hate men? <laughs> but anyway. It, uh, yeah, well, so. that's good. I was curious on how that, you know, because I think there's a lot of times, depending on the school that you go to, and obviously certain things that have influenced you and your family or career, what have you, you know, Mm -hmm. life path or um, family members to pursue that. And so it's interesting that you were pursuing that at that time when it wasn't really, you know, as prevalent as an opportunity, you know, to pursue. Okay. So now we're at the staffing um, agency and, you know, let's talk about that because it was, I'm sure that was very impactful to you and your career path and seeing everything that you were seeing there and kind of those lessons that you learned there and helped shape you to into becoming the professional that you were then and that you continued to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so like I said, I, my first, uh, promotion was to the manager in Decatur, Illinois. 
Um, and then I left Decatur and um, was promoted to manage our operations in Austin, Texas. Oh, wow. That so, was a big jump. Oh, my gosh. It was Soybean amazing. capital to Austin, Texas. You got I love it. To Austin. live music capital. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, it was right when Michael Dell was starting out. I mean, yeah. we're, I think he's like three years younger than me or something. I can't remember right now. Um, and it was just starting to boom. And it was a fantastic place to be. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I maybe would have stayed in Austin forever. But like I said, my husband and I started dating in college. We broke up for two years, two solid years. Yeah. And we decided to get back together. And we're like, oh, you know, Austin is going to kind of be your place. And how will I fit into your life? So I accepted another promotion to go to work at my company's headquarters in, in Detroit. Mm. So I left Austin for Detroit. <laughs> um, I know. I know. That wah, was, wah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, I actually, um, again, kind of back to the experience that I had in Decatur, you know, being in Detroit and seeing um, seeing the decimation of the city, yes, uh, I think kind of made me an urbanist. Like you know, I've everywhere I've lived since I've lived in the city mm. in the city limits, just mm-hmm. because I feel like we have a responsibility to protect our urban core. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I spent three years in Detroit, and it was a good experience. But I got pregnant with my first child, and I was like, I don't want my child born in Detroit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want my baby born someplace else. And so I. Um, we were, uh, the management position in Raleigh opened up. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so I've had just like this from the Midwest to these, you know, high growth, mm-hmm. really attractive cities. Um, I always say that like, you know, when you're in high school, there's like two groups of smart kids. There's like the nerdy future business leaders, band smart kids. And then there's the like artsy fartsy, Mm -hmm. you know, anti-establishment smart kids. And so I feel like all of those, you know, anti-establishments went to Austin. All of the, (laughs) all of the really, you know, straight laced ones went to Raleigh. And in the end, they've both had incredible impacts. Um, in our economy, I think over the past few years. Yeah. So, um, so well, I mean, do you feel like, I mean, that's a lot of movement and change. Is it something that you've just always been open to? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, was it ever anything that was scary to go? Like, I'm somebody like that too. I, I like change and I like yeah. being challenged with different things, but um, that's a lot of movement mm-hmm. and, you know, big swings and shifts of, you know, the economy and the culture of the city that you're in and all of that too. So, yeah, I've just always, um, I loved the opportunity to see different parts of our country. Yep. Um, and again, I was single, so I didn't have anything tying me down. Yeah. And um, it was just, uh, it was a wonderful way to grow my career. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing, the great thing about being in the staffing industry at that time is it was exploding as well. And so you got to learn so much yeah so many different industries and so many different companies so it was just really exciting work that's true very well-rounded you know you kind of have your hand in all these different cookie jars so Mm -hmm. to speak exactly so were you did you get married when you were in Detroit yeah okay okay so we got married in Detroit and my husband says that um and I was in a job while I was in Detroit so you could get married in Detroit but you couldn't have your baby in Detroit (laughs) exactly Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, my husband says I only married him to have somebody to watch my dog while I traveled for work. But you know, whatever works, whatever works. So. Okay, so then you're prego with your first. You guys moved to Raleigh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we were in Raleigh 
um, for three years and had a wonderful experience. Um, and Kelly Services had acquired a legal staffing business. Mm. And so um, they asked me if I would uh, transfer over to that business unit. I mean, as a promotion, but um, as the national director of sales and marketing. And it was called the Law Registry. And so um, that's what I did. And we had, well, had Did you feel like that was a shift? Because you were more in management and then yeah. you go into sales and marketing, right? I mean, well, was that? Yeah, it was always sales, you know. Even in the when staffing? You're leaving, mm-hmm. Yeah. But was the marketing piece part of what you were doing mm-hmm. with? Okay, okay. I think um, the guys, in the the guy at our headquarters in marketing was always trying to get me to come to work in marketing because yeah. he's like, you, you think more like a marketer than a salesperson. But I loved sales because I loved being out and yeah. visiting with our customers and learning about their businesses. Yeah. Um, and so it was, uh, I was the only non-attorney mm. in the company. So that was really interesting because, you know, there was a lot of uh, trepidation about being acquired by sure. this Fortune 500 firm. And, um, you know, and then the first thing they do is send, I think I was... 20, how old was I? Maybe 28 or 29. And uh, maybe I was a little older. I can't remember. But anyway, they're like, who is this whippersnapper? And yeah. that doesn't know anything about the law profession. And why is she here? And um, so that was a fun thing. Like, uh, you know, helping to establish my credibility, helping to grow that um, business because Kelly has a lot of national accounts. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to really help them expand their pool and um, got to work on the Exxon Mobil merger. I mean, yeah, it was, it that's was a really, big one. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, there Did you really look cool at things. it more of like a challenge? Was it anything that you felt yeah. intimidated by, by being surrounded by all those, you know, legal minds and legal professions when you lacked that skill set or knowledge? I probably should have been more intimidated by it than I was. But, you know, when I was at when I was at Trancy, um, everybody that I knew that didn't know what they wanted to do after college went to law school. Oh. And so I was, um, I always kind of looked at law as like a fallback profession, mm-hmm. which was maybe not the best move either. But yeah, it was it was an interesting thing to be working in a company full of lawyers who had decided not to practice law. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Okay. So then what happens from there? Well, so let's see. So we had our second kid and we were coming back from North Carolina, driving back from um, Louisville to North Carolina. My husband's family is in Louisville. Mm-hmm. We're big and, Cards fans. Oh, Yay. go Cardinals. Yeah, yeah. We have a mixed marriage. I was going to say. I'm a Wildcat yeah, fan. Yeah. My husband's a Cardinals <laughs> fan, but we make it work. We yeah. make it work. Um, but uh, my daughter started crying the second we crossed the border into West Virginia and like screamed. All She was three. Screamed all the way back to Raleigh. And we were like, that's it. We will either move or never travel to our family again at the holidays. Yeah. And so I talked to um, my boss. It didn't really matter where I lived because Mm. I traveled all the time. Yeah, And I said, you know, I want to live in Cincinnati. And so we came to Cincinnati when my youngest was a year old. And um, shortly after we got here, so I think we were here in October of 2000. Mm -hmm. And... um, in April was uh, when we had the the riots over yes. Tim- Timothy Thomas's shooting. Yes, and um, it was you know it's so funny because my husband and I both grew up in in Kentucky, mm-hmm. and in Kentucky, you know, Cincinnati is the big city. It's sure. like the the shining beacon on the hill, right? Yep. We, we loved Cincinnati, and um, 
it was really hard. It was really hard to see that mm-hmm. happen in the community. And it started me thinking, you know, here I am. I've chosen to move my family, to raise my children in this community. And I'm getting on a plane every week. And I don't, other than the people who live on either side of me, I'm really not a part of this community. Did you guys choose to live in the urban core when mm-hmm. you came back? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. We, were in, when you in Hyde, we were in Hyde Park. I don't yeah. really know you can call that urban core, but it, we pay taxes <laughs> in the city. Yes. How about that? Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, and our kids went to public schools in Cincinnati. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we, um, so that was in, I think, April. And then, um, you know, five months later was September 11th. Mm-hmm. And so I was supposed to be getting on a plane to Philadelphia and I had gone into the office to get something done first. And, um, you know, on I was listening to NPR on the way into work. And I heard that, you know, a plane. And I was like, what? And I go on into the office. And then you start seeing everything. And I turned around and I came home. And I just sat there. And as the day unfolded, I was like, you know, I, I think I need to do something different. Yeah. So. so what a moment, though. It was. You know? it I mean, really, everybody, it's, it's like, a. I mean, in myriad of other moments, right, that people can just put themselves back to and you know exactly where you were. And, but, you know, even you having that experience, like I remember exactly where I was as well, but then to have it be a catalyst that makes change in your personal life is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It, it it was, it Mm -hmm. was, uh, it was transformative. And so, um, 90 days later, I, um, I resigned and said I was going to take six months off to just figure out what I wanted to do next. Yeah. And um, my oldest was going to be starting kindergarten. And I was like, you know, this is a good time to do this. And uh, everybody was like, yeah, you'll you'll lose your mind as a stay-at-home <laughs> mom. You'll hate it. And I actually loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so six months turned into a little over a year. Yeah. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And... Um, I literally just woke up one day. It was like, I have got to go back to work. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, like the joy of it all of a sudden was just like, I want to go to work in the morning. And so um, I had decided I wanted to go to work at a nonprofit, mm-hmm. had, which, you know, um, for anybody who's listening, whoever entertains that, I remember, you know, I was like, okay, I need to start networking with people. Mm-hmm. So I would meet with people and they would say, well, you know, well, what sector do you want to work with? And I was like, I don't know. I just want to help people. I, right. I had no idea what I wanted to do in a nonprofit. And so um, I went uh, through a friend. I met with the uh, woman who was the CEO of what was then called Work Resource Center, Lisa Fitzgibbon. And um, it was kind of like love at first sight. Mm-hmm. Um, I left the uh, the second interview and I called my husband and he said, well, how did it go? And I said, I, I don't know what's crazier, the fact that she offered me a job on the spot or that I accepted it on the spot. I mean, I didn't say, give me time to think about it. Let, let me, me talk negotiate to my husband. Exactly. Let me come I'm back on. to you with my counter. Exactly. No, I'm in. I'm in. I'll be there. And um, I really thought I'd be there for a couple of years and then move on to um, uh, to work, to lead another nonprofit. Yeah. Um, what and, was your position that you were offered oh, yeah, when you were going yeah. in? Yeah. So I had a sales background. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, I'd said, I don't want to do fundraising. But of course, everybody wanted me to do fundraising. Right. And Well, uh, and it's so paramount. Also, uh, obviously, for exactly. people who are listening, who are thinking of that. I mean, that's what makes the, oh. the, the wheels on the bus go in exactly. nonprofit. So, you know, you have to do it and you touch do. it or else it, the organization doesn't exist. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. And um, 
and I was actually uh, really taken by, um, you know, the similarities in, mm-hmm. in sales and in fundraising, um, except, you know, in sales, you're trying to sell people a product or a service that right. will benefit them. And in fundraising, you're trying to get people to give you money for something that most times they will never personally benefit from. Mm-hmm. And, and they so, can't touch it or feel yeah, it either most of the time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, the thing I love about uh, our age, and so WRC became Easter Seals mm-hmm. um, in 2003, and I'm sorry, 2006. And um, the thing that I had loved about being the, the development leader at our agency is um, sometimes it, it's not being exploitive of mm-hmm. the people that we serve. Um, you know, the Easter Seals, uh, One there's an Easter Seals affiliate that serves a lot of children. And, um, you know, you can put a kid with a disability out and make somebody cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you get there and you think about, is that my kid and how your life would change? For sure, it tugs at and, your heart. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's it could be very um, emotionally manipulative. And um, one of our other affiliates is like, her Her rule is don't pimp the kids. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's sort of how we've always been, right? Mm-hmm. That we are not the hero in the stories of the people we serve. They mm-hmm. are. Yes. And we're there to help them on that journey, but this is their journey, not ours. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love that. Love that about, about our agency and, and the work that we do and the people that we serve who amaze me every freaking day. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about from when you came into Easter Seals, what your role was and kind of that transition along your your career with them. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so like I said, I'd been there for eight years when Lisa announced that she was retiring. And um, like I said, Lisa was a great mentor to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really thought long and hard about do I want to do I want to try to be Lisa's successor? And um you know, the job was going to, was open until X date. And the day before, I still hadn't put my name in. Mm-hmm. And Lisa said, you know, what's going on? Are you going to apply? And I said, you know, Lisa, I don't want to be your rebound girl, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're amazing. It's, and yeah. I don't. Big shoes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'm not, I'm not sure. And um, Lisa said, uh, you know, Pam, I was the right leader for then, but I'm not the right leader for now. Mm-hmm. And you might be. And so um, that was really wonderful words to come from somebody. I mean, I know you've always spoken highly of her, but, um, you know, I think there's there's always that trepidation whenever somebody is considered being considered to go into another role. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of confidence in Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, but anytime you can get that push or that advice or just that loving support from a mentor is really profound, you it know, is. to have that and, and invaluable. So, you know, what a gift. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, for, um, for women, I don't know if, if you read the confidence code. I have. So, yeah. you know, no matter how good we are, we never think we're good enough. Correct. And, um, so, so that meant a lot. And then, um, one of my other friends said to me, uh, you know, it's never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So Lisa's gone. Lisa's leaving. So you can either chart the course or you can follow someone else's. That's so true. I and love that. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
I applied for the position and was selected. Down to the wire. I did. I know. (laughs) I know. But. um, Was it how much of an interview process and everything was it moving forward? Especially since you had been there for a while. So you were established. I was, but, um, you know, Lisa uh, and the board decided that they wanted to do a national search. Mm -hmm. And Lisa was fully supportive. There were two of us internally that applied. And Lisa said, you know, what's really important is I'm going to be gone. And it's important that the board feel like this is their candidate, not not one of my direct reports. Mm -hmm. And so um, the board did a national search and um, it ended up choosing me. So I know, I know. And it's been, um, it's been phenomenal. So many wonderful things um, are going on and have happened. So, so why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about Easter Seals and yeah. what you guys support and and how you help and and all of the things before we kind of get into some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at Easter Seals, you know, um, our our mission is to build a more diverse and inclusive workforce and community. Mm-hmm. And so, in Greater Cincinnati, we do that by focusing almost exclusively on workforce. And so our programs are targeted to three different areas, or to three different populations, I should say. It's people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And within the disabilities population, it's mostly um, transition-aged youth and working adult, and adult, um, adults, working-age adults. We don't do anything in the, like, early childhood space. Um, We serve uh, people in poverty, and Mm -hmm. that includes a lot of people that are on public supports from Hamilton County Job and Family Service, as well as from Butler, Claremont, and Warren County. Mm -hmm. And then we also um, have a military um, and veteran employment program. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It is. It is. And, um, you know, we... So I think, you know, just in the in the past year between the pandemic and what mm-hmm. we've learned about what's essential work and what we've learned about what work can be done from home and such uh, a hard term. Oh my gosh, it is. I mean, really, I struggled with that a lot yeah. over the past 18 months of just making decisions for our team of people and employees and all of that and the essential work and um uh-huh. yeah. It's, it's it is it's a doozy yeah like mm-hmm. and what does it mean to be non-essential right um, like right. I'm I, so anyway um, and so uh, you know when we it's sort of and then of course with um, you know all of the social justice movement mm-hmm. around the George Floyd shooting um, it really has I think brought home the importance of what we do yeah because um, you know. We've always been about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, our um, our office is in Walnut Hills, and we're very proud to be a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And so um, we sort of say that, you know, in, in disability environments, um, disability services is very often um, very geared to uh, families with middle class assets because those are the best advocates as well. You know, I mean, I would certainly be the best advocate for my child if mm-hmm. she had diagnosed developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. But um, very often service systems aren't designed to think about what challenges they might present for families in poverty. Absolutely. So when we're in disability meetings, I think the Easter Seals person is always the one raising their hand and saying, well, what does this mean for people? people in poverty. Right. Um, on the other hand, when we are in uh, work groups mm-hmm. uh, around how are we going to address poverty in our community, people seldom think about people with disabilities. And actually, uh, 
disabilities is the demographic group with the highest concentration of poverty, higher than any um, ethnicity or racial demographic. It's people with disabilities have live in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so in those groups, we're always the ones saying, I know you're here to talk about poverty, but why aren't we talking about disability? Mm -hmm. And um, we're really proud of that, quite frankly, that um, so anyway, so I say all that to say that in this past year, I think what we've seen is that um, what we're doing at Easter Seals in terms of helping people connect to the workforce, it really transcends whatever label has been applied to them. Mm-hmm. It's how do we help them to tap into their talents? How do we help employers to access that talent? Mm-hmm. What do you think are like, you know, everybody has it no matter where they are, but the biggest challenges you see from working in nonprofit outside of funding, Mm because I know funding is obviously one of the biggest, Mm -hmm. you know, challenges just to keep everything going. But Mm -hmm. outside of that, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges you see in in your, um, you know, view of Easter Seals being a nonprofit? Yeah. So um, it's aligned to funding, but different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's funding for sustainability, um, and and how do you do that? And so, for example, with our veterans program, when we started up our veterans program, um, we said to the two foundations, the Farmer Family Foundation and the Caroline and Ralphie Hill Foundation, they each gave us nearly a, they gave us um, nearly a million dollars each, mm-hmm. and we said we're going to pilot this for three years completely with philanthropic funding, because. Um, we don't want to have to deal with government funding restrictions and eligibility requirements right. while we yes. get this up off the ground. And so, um, and then since then, our stated purpose has been at no point will this program ever have more than 50% government funding because we want to be able to serve every vet or military service member that comes. Mm-hmm. So we've done that, but often what happens is foundations or individuals say, you know, we want you to figure out how you're going to be sustainable. You can't rely on us forever. Right. Which I get that. Mm-hmm. But where does sustainability come from? Right. And so I would say that in addition to the funding to keep the lights on, it's access to capital. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have great ideas that we think will move the needle, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like, you know, a startup, I need X million dollars for startup. Right. And then at the end, your investors are going to get a payoff. Mm-hmm. We're not going to develop a blockbuster product that's going to generate a million dollars in cash for mm-hmm. a nonprofit. Um, and so it's it's looking for access to funding that moves the needle on systemic change. And that's that, I think, is a real challenge. The nonprofit sector um, reinvents and reinvents and reinvents. Yeah, and it's constantly because mm-hmm. you don't have an investor that's getting a cash flow return. You got it. Yeah, you got it. And so there's there's not necessarily money to uh, replicate and scale. Right. There's no financial incentive to merge, and so there's no product to capitalize on. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the one of the biggest challenges um, in the nonprofit world. Um, I think obviously the other, and I'm going to speak specifically to our community, um, is uh, is poverty, and you know poverty 
affects everything. You mm-hmm. know, children who are hungry don't come to school ready to learn. Right. Schools that have all poor children can't help everybody to learn. And mm-hmm. so then, you know, we're sending people out into the workforce that aren't prepared. So they get stuck in low-wage jobs. And then, you know, um, you're in a low-wage job and you're working hard, but you're just one, you know, one blown transmission mm-hmm. away from losing your or job you and falling back and or, uh, or you end up pregnant mm-hmm. and it is um and so it's really um it's really a challenge and so what we talk about at easter seals all the time and it kind of goes back to that who's the hero of the story is that we don't fix people the people who come to us are not broken mm-hmm. um, i love that it's true they mm-hmm. they need help but yes. very often um, they just don't have any stability in their life to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like my my daughters, I tell my two daughters, you know, end of times, the kids we serve at Easter Seals will eat your lunch, mm-hmm. you know, because they've got survival skills out the wazoo. Yep. And the conditions that they live in and the fact that they get up and have optimism and try to make a change in their life every day never ceases to mm-hmm. amaze me. So, um, so I think that's um, another challenge in our community is how do nonprofits um, address poverty when we only have a couple of tools in our co- yes. our toolkit. Yep. And so, you know, I can help people get jobs all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, but when only one in four jobs pays a living wage, I'm not necessarily helping them out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I'm helping them to a better quality of life. Quite frankly, I believe that in my core, Mm -hmm. that work is so much more than a paycheck, Mm -hmm. that it is, um, we talk all the time about the power of work and the power of purpose. Well, it's true. I mean, there's confidence, there's, you know, commonality, there's relationship building, there's, you know, so many other things, love, I mean, that comes from some of these that they just don't have at home, you know? I mean, we see most of the time in your working life, you see your people at work more than you see your own family mm-hmm. um, with the hours that you put in. So there's so much more that comes of it other than just a paycheck. You got it. So you're giving them an opportunity to not only, you know, survive, but keep their head above water. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that's really going to propel them mm-hmm. out of the situation that they may be in. Mm-hmm. For many, it does. But it's just, it's it's uh, when you start with an educational deficit. Yes. And you're competing um it's, it is, it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough, tough, uh, environment out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think, uh, people say all the time, there are too many nonprofits that we need to collaborate more, that we need to merge. And I mean, there have been, so we merged our, our combined with Jewish vocational service in 2012 and nearly doubled our size. Mm-hmm. And it was a really positive thing for us. Um, it was a really positive thing for their employees and the people that they serve. I think people would be shocked if they knew how much nonprofits actually collaborate. Um, so, you know, Easter Seals is in like formal contractual partnerships with Talbert House, with Lighthouse, yeah. with Greater Cincinnati Behavioral. Um, so a lot of us are working together. Mm-hmm. But collaboration takes time and costs money. Yes. So sometimes it's just like, oh my gosh, if I have to slow down and make sure this is okay with Talbert House one more time, I'm going to lose my mind because mm-hmm. we just got to go. Yep. And so, um, so that's, you it's know. It's a roadblock. It, it just, is. It, it becomes it really a hurdle. Is. Yeah, well, and um, and it is, it, it's funny to me because, so for example, when, um, you know, when I was at Kelly, if somebody had, had told me that there were too many staffing companies and I needed to collaborate with a deco, I would have been like, are you, you know, what are you 
smoking. Right. Um, and so, so it's interesting that, yeah. that's, that, that's, that that's the expectation when we're all fighting for sustainability. For you guys. Yeah. Right. But you're also fighting over limited funds you and all these other things that, you know, uh, in, you know, different market rate yeah. companies, they don't have to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And we've tried. I mean, I think one of the one of the reasons that we're a good collaborator at Easter Seals is because we have stayed pretty exclusively focused on workforce. Yep or people with disabilities mm-hmm. that are adult age. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so like, for example, with, um, um, I'll say, a, a Talbert House, mm-hmm. you know, they do so much work in the the behavioral health space or yeah. in um, the, uh, you know, uh, corrections space, but they don't do that much around workforce. And so we partner together really well for right. things like that. Well, that's just like, really, I mean, I think there's a lot of times people don't think about that in the same sense that, it's the same thought process with businesses. You know, you're not going to, you know, merge or you're not going to collaborate unless one of you is each bringing something to the table that benefits the other. Otherwise, you know, it's it's a moot point at that, you know, yeah. why go through the work and the effort and all the things if it's like there's not something you're bringing mm-hmm. to the table or I'm bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. Um that's interesting. Well, I know when you were talking about when you had this revelation of, you know, hey, I need to get back to work. And then you chose to go into this. And, you know, what are some things you can think of for people who entertain the nonprofit mm-hmm. workforce, mm-hmm. you know, getting into that? I know one of the things you mentioned is, you know, hey, I've got a network and I've got to do some of this other stuff. Um, you know, do you feel like that's still relevant and important today? Or, you know, is there certain um, just like in any other job, there's certain skill sets or things that you look for for people to be able to come in and, you know, survive and do well in that that sector of of working. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a couple of things that I would say is, yes, absolutely network. I meet with folks all the time mm-hmm. and am happy to to talk about what the differences are when you move to the nonprofit sector. Yep. Um, you know, for me, uh I will say I hadn't even been working for over a year. Mm -hmm. And when I got my first paycheck, like I almost physically threw up. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Yeah. And it wasn't until my second year as CEO Mm -hmm. that I made, so it was 11 years. So it was 11 years at Easter Seals before I made what I left Kelly yet. Yeah. And so... Um, I think that is viable. I think people need to understand that. I mean, the, the reason why you're getting into it is a lot more than the paycheck, which, you know, I believe it should be for everybody. But still, mm-hmm. you know, there's things that, you know, it's going to take a long time, especially if you're already in the the for-profit business. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very different. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's not just... Um, I, I think that nonprofits have gotten more professional. And mm-hmm. so I think that that gap between for-profit and nonprofit for compensation is closing somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good because we need to attract the best and the brightest talent to solve problems that have existed since the beginning of time. Right. Um, but it's also um, the your salary pretty much is your comp. Mm-hmm. Very few nonprofits offer bonus programs. Very few nonprofits have, you know, deferred comp or right. bonuses or, you know, company cars or whatever benefits you might have been. Right, a whole slew so, of other things. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's important that people go into that with eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, I've had folks that say, you know, my job is just so stressful 
and I just can't keep working this hard. And so I'm thinking about going to the nonprofit world, and that is the most offensive thing. So don't say that if you're out networking because, A, it's the wrong thing to say, and, B, it's so not true. You know, um, one of my friends who's in children's services was talking about someone who said that, and she's like, are you kidding me? If I don't do my job, children die. Yes, yes. This is is stressful work. Yeah. and so I would say, uh, you know, go into it with your with your eyes wide open. And the other thing I'd say is don't treat it any differently than you would um, a job search in the for-profit sector. Look mm-hmm. for organizations with good leaders. Yep. Um, look for organizations with, you know, good cash flow. Yeah. Um, and uh, look for organizations that are the best at what they do. Mm-hmm. What do you think, so when you were there 11 years before you transitioned into your current role, what were some of those big shifts for you when you stepped into those those shoes of Lisa? Not even just because it was her, but just you're in that role where now everybody's looking to you to help guide and make decisions. You know, you're here to steer the course. You are here to say, how are we going to shift and move and, um, you know, look for different ways of revenue and all of these other things. I mean, how was that transition. I mean, that feels like it was a, a big jump, even though you were in the company and in the, in the nonprofit, but just your eyes are open to different things when you're in a different position. And that's a big, it's a big role. Yeah. Yeah. It, it um, so I, uh, when Lisa announced her retirement and Easter Steels started their search, that's when Peter Block, who was the CEO at JVS, mm-hmm. um, reached out to Lisa and said, you know, hey, with you leaving, this might be a good time for us to talk about our agencies combining. And Lisa said, well, that's all fine and good, but we have to continue a job search because I'm out of here in December. I right. announced it. I'm done. And so Peter said, you know, I, I plan to retire in the next couple of years. And so, um, you know, I'm happy with saying that whoever you will hire as the CEO of Easter Seals will be the new CEO of the combined organization Mm. should this go through. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started, I was named to the position in December of 2011 and July 31st, or July 1st, I'm sorry, July 1st, the combination with JVS was official. Wow. So we more than doubled in size. JVS had a little bit more revenue than we did. Mm -hmm. Um, We went from having 80 employees to having 230 because JVS had a different um, service line schedule. So it was a lot. Yeah. Um, It was a lot. And oddly enough, you know how um, uh, sometimes it's the the tragedies or Mm -hmm. those unexpected things that make things stronger and happen for a reason. So um, in at the end of August, Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services um, notified us that um, a program of JVS that was nearly a million dollars in funding would no no longer be funded. Oh, gosh. And that they were cutting reimbursement rates for all of the providers of the service that we mm. offered by 37%. Wow. And so... Um, that's it, devastating. Like, it that's... was a million and a half dollars right. um, in revenue. Mm-hmm. And so we had to regroup. And I think one of the things that happened is the only folks that JBS served were people with disabilities versus Easter Seals served multiple populations. So while disability services was taking these funding cuts, we had won a couple of new federal grants Mm -hmm. in uh, our other service lines. So we were able to redeploy um, like 20 staff and save their jobs. And so I think um, 
while it was awful, Mm -hmm. it was an incredibly unifying experience for the team. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so that, I think that was the, the, the first like big thing. But that's um, a really big thing. Oh, it, was, it was so big, yeah. Megan. I mean, so even though that's big. a big thing, there's people who won't experience things like that just in their their time at their current position. So oh, that's yeah, that's major. Yeah. So so that was um, that was big. And so um, I think from a um, a leadership perspective. Um, I am incredibly fortunate to work with amazing people. Mm-hmm. And you know what they say about hiring people smarter than you. I, yes, absolutely, I fully agree with that. Oh my Same. Gosh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, um, uh, my successor in development, I mean, she runs circles around me. She's so much better than I was at that job. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, all the way around, our people are absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that, you know, uh, there's a, a quote that like nonprofit is a is an IRS status, not a business strategy. Mm. <laughs> so so like that's that. it. Yeah. We're always trying to, you know, always trying to ensure that we're generating enough margin that we have something there for hard times. Yeah. Well, you know, for you to have sustained this position now for 10 years. Yes. Yeah, you. Crazy. Congratulations. Um but, you know, I mean, what are some of those things that you really feel have not just in general? Like, I, I believe the same things, you know, hire people who are smarter than you. Mm-hmm. I, I fully believe in iron sharpens iron, the people you want to rub elbows with. You know, I don't want people who I work with that just are yes people. I want them to challenge me. I want them to be collaborators. You know, that's mm-hmm. how we all grow and you grow a business and scale a business. Um, but, you know, what do you think is really part of Pam's qualities that have really allowed you to sustain this position for 10 years and make you such a wonderful leader of this nonprofit. Yeah. Um, I am an eternal optimist. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we did a le- senior leadership uh, exercise one time about um, what's your real job title? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I said mine was chief energy officer. Uh-huh. And I take that very seriously because like with my team, when I'm stressed and worried yeah. and feeling like, oh, I can tell how that comes off on them. Absolutely. So um, I, think, uh, I think that's one of the things. And then I, I think the other piece that um, has helped me to succeed is, um, you know, we talked a little bit about collaboration in the nonprofit sector, but I also report to a board. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have 20 some odd bosses mm-hmm. and my direct boss changes every two years. Yeah, And so that's tough. And I think that I have been able to succeed in part because I've been able to work with amazing board leaders that share um, my commitment to our mission and take their role in advancing our mission very seriously, mm-hmm. very seriously. So um, I think the ability to uh, work with a board and get the best out of them and keep them focused on strategy versus micromanaging, mm-hmm. um, I think that's something that I've brought to the position Yeah, um, that has, uh, has really benefited. And I think the, you know, just another thing is, is I am not a, um, an empire builder. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I know a lot of folks that, um, 
relationships with their predecessors are not great. Yeah. And I have been so fortunate to have worked with Lisa and with Peter Block from Mm -hmm. JVS. And those two folks have done nothing but support me. And versus tell me what I'm doing wrong. Right. And which is what I've seen in a a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been, that has been really important. Um, I think it's, it's a large part them, but it's also just that I don't bring a lot of ego to it either. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and obviously you have, you know, a lot of the other, you know, you're very adaptable. You look for change, you know, you look for ways to, you know, collaborate and a lot of things that no matter what are always going to make somebody successful in their role. But, you know, the the one thing I think about is just being a leader. I think there's a lot of times that people, um, and I don't know if it's similar in the nonprofit, but I see it a lot in in the, um, in our company and, and various companies that are for profit is that there's always just this next ladder that you're trying to achieve that a lot of people feel like that. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the thing I'm shooting for? And, you know, I'm going to get to this next role, right? And, you know, the thing I always tell people is the higher you go, it is significantly more about how you are with people than it is about Mm -hmm. your exact you know, um, skill set or, you know, you're phenomenal with numbers or all the things, right? The the bigger you go, the more leadership role you take on. It's about building teams, supporting people, you know, allowing other people to achieve their goals and their dreams. Um, so what do you think just having that very heavy leadership role mm-hmm. of president and CEO, you know, what are, what are some of those things from a leadership perspective that you think are really rewarding and really challenging mm-hmm. as a leader? Yeah, I think what you said is brilliant, quite frankly. It is so true. Um, you know, one of my direct reports was saying that when he was promoted to vice president at his last company, that his boss said to him, you know, what got you here won't keep you here. Because, right. you know, you're here because none of the problems you're going to have to solve from now on are easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. So, right. um, and, and, and the higher you go, it's more problems oh. that are greater complexity and, you know, more yeah. challenge. Uh, so, so true. So I think, um, you know, a part of it is helping, always helping people connect to the why of what they do. Yes. And um, I know folks may think that's easy in a nonprofit, but, you know, I mean, just for example, with um, our partnership with PLK, mm-hmm. I mean, if if people don't have safe and, you know, affordable based on their income housing, mm-hmm. they can't keep a job. Right. You know, um, so... I, I think, you know, the work that you guys do is is critical to me being able to do my job, to, mm-hmm. to do my mission. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, I think that no matter what role you're in, can helping the people who work for you connect to the why mm-hmm. and the purpose of it is, um, is, is really um, a meaningful thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, the other thing that uh, you mentioned innovation and um, we say all the time that, you know, even if you're on the right track, if you just sit there, you'll get run over. Mm-hmm. And we are constantly thinking of how can we do this better? Yes. How can we um, make more of an impact in the lives of the people we serve in our community? Mm-hmm. So we've done some really innovative things. Um, you know, in 2003, it was actually the year I joined the organization. We launched Building Value, um, which is in Northside. If you haven't been there, I encourage you all to go and to shop and spend lots of money. <laughs> um, but it is. Uh, it's a building material and uh, deconstruction enterprise um, where we kind of decided, okay, if we are going to say that we're training people for work, 
let's put them to work ourselves first. Love it. And so we can be sure. Yeah. So people come to Building Value. They spend four to six months with us and we train them in construction, in worksite safety. So, you know, for instance, uh, Megan, if you were redoing your kitchen, mm-hmm. you could call BV, they'll come, they'll take out your cabinets in a manner that they can be salvaged for reuse. You get a tax deduction for what they take away. Mm-hmm. Of course, you pay us because we pay our people. Right. Um, we li- We exist completely on customer revenue at Building Value. Um, so we wrote this business plan. And at that time, um, the Yale School of Management and the Goldman Sachs Foundation were having this business plan competition. So we entered, there were like, I don't know, 600 nonprofits that entered. Um, we made it through all of these rounds. And at the end, we were one of 20 finalists mm. that um, were invited to go to New York and present to these venture capitalists. So it was really, it was, um, it was absolutely amazing. But I do want to say there were, uh, we got there, and of the 20 finalists, 18 were from the coasts. Yeah. Um, and two were from Cincinnati. Wow. So, yeah. 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 So, I think Cincinnati does have uh, an entrepreneurial spirit. Yes. Um, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. And so then, so that was our first. And actually, I uh, we're getting ready to launch a campaign, and I went back to look at how those, so we were one of eight um, eight winners mm-hmm. um, from the, the group of 20, and it was amazing. Um, and I went back to look at how many are still in business, and there's only a handful that are still in business, and there's only wow. a couple of us that are doing, a lot of them are in business, they're just not doing what they said they were going to do. Yeah, We're one of the only ones that's still doing what we said we'd do um, and still generating a return and sustainable. Yeah. So our other business enterprise that we operate um, is our production and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And we do, uh, we build medical kits for clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So we are going gangbusters right now. So I'm sure. Uh, we never closed during COVID. Our folks were in every day building COVID test kits for our customers. Um, and it's interesting now the, you know, they've moved from the vaccine piece to now um, the development of therapeutic uh, mm-hmm. treatments. And so, um, so that's talk about work with meaning for the folks we serve. Absolutely. And again, that's no government funding whatsoever. Um, it's all customer income. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm really talking about like leading, uh, pointing out to our staff all the time. We compete with for-profit companies for this work at clinical trials. The other kidding providers are for-profit companies mm-hmm. around the globe. We're already starting out at a deficit because the people who work for us um, have some sort of barrier. Right. If they were able to get a job on their own, they would have done it. Mm-hmm. They're with us because they're trying to work out whatever challenge is standing in their life to keep them from succeeding. Mm-hmm. So we're already starting out how much less efficient right. than our others. Behind the eight ball. You got yeah. it. And we just learned last week that we are currently the number one kidding producer in terms of volume and quality for wow. Pfizer in the world. Oh, Pam, congratulations. Isn't that amazing? That is Little amazing. Easter Seals in Cincinnati. Love and it. so, um, so yeah, so. I hope your team's very proud of that. That's what I was going to say. Just, yeah. you know, shouting that from the rooftops yes. when you have a success like that. Um, it's, it's pretty meaningful. And so we are, um, so our goal is to, to grow that business so that we can provide more employment opportunities mm-hmm. for, um, for transitional folks. So, 
um, you know, back to the collaboration thing, we've collaborated with the YMCA on several things and um, they were thinking about closing their Melrose uh, facility yes. and they uh, decided, uh, Jorge, the leader at the Y said, you know what, what if instead of just closing the center, we make it a space that houses lots of different nonprofits. And so there are five of us that are in there right now. It's called the Melrose Impact Center. And what we're talking about now at Easter Seals is um, using that space and moving our programs into the most of that space. We'll still have some partners there. Um, but our Gilbert office becoming almost completely production. Wow. So, yeah. So it's an uh, expanding our space, adding new things. So it's so exciting. You have a lot of exciting things. We do. You have a lot to be proud of. Uh, it's, 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 it's great work. It really is. I, yeah. I cannot believe, I genuinely cannot believe I've been here 21 years because right. it's, it's never gotten old. Yeah. yeah. What a gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a joy talking to you about you Easter sales and just you personally. But I have final five questions okay. that I ask everybody. So here we go. Um, all right. So as today stands, what are you most proud of personally? I am most proud personally of my two daughters. Mm-hmm. One struggled to find uh, what she wanted to do. She's in nursing school and my youngest has type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. and she is doing an amazing job today of, of, of managing her disease. That's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, girls. that's wonderful. How old are they now? Uh, 24 and 23. Oh, wow. I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what are you hopeful about right now? What brings you hope? Um, what brings me hope is all of the amazing promise in people Mm -hmm. and that we're going to take what we've learned from, you know, like I said, some of the, the, the spotlight that we've shed on some of the equity issues in our community and the things that we've learned from the pandemic about jobs that we didn't think could be done from home and now they can. So that means so much for people with disabilities. So I am so hopeful about the future of work that we're going to rebuild a more equitable and inclusive workforce. Yeah. Love it. Um, What is one piece of advice you need to hear right now? (sighs) If somebody could say something to you, what do you think you need to hear? Yeah. Um, That it's not all on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I feel like a lot of us leaders do that for sure. Even though you can be super collaborative and you have wonderful, wonderful teams, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, you're the one that's responsible. So it's hard not to put it all on your shoulders sometimes. I think my team tells me that all the time. It's not all on you, Pam. We're right here. We got it. I know, I know, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. What is the greatest lesson that you feel took you the longest to learn? Mm, That's a great one. Um, I think I am still learning Mm -hmm. to have greater confidence in my ideas Mm. that um, I am, you know, one of those folks that has like 92 ideas in Uh it. And sometimes I second guess myself too much. I shouldn't. Sometimes these things are really good. Yeah. I love that you said that. That's a first. Um, and then how do you hope people remember you? When you think of people, when they think of Pam, how do you want to be thought of or remembered? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a great question, Megan. I think that um, I want to be remembered as someone who helped lift up 
others mm-hmm. um, and believe in themselves that it wasn't, uh, yeah, that I included, that, that I was inclusive and, and kind. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. You too. Thank you for taking time out of your day. I mean, I'm surprised between the both of us, we actually got this nailed down pretty quick, (laughs) which I was excited about. I know. Um, (laughs) But for those who want to get in more information about Easter Seals or they want to just dive in a little bit more to what you talked about, where can people find you online or anything just so they can get some more information? Uh, Yeah. So our website is Mm -hmm. uh, www.easterseelsgc.org. Um, and you can follow us on social media. Um, we just did, I'll tell you, if you're looking for a little inspiration, we just had our honor ride for veterans this past weekend. Oh yeah. And, um, it was, a uh, you know, a, a bicycle ride and it's absolutely amazing. And so, is that, those are on your social yeah, media? All yeah. Of that's there's on there? some okay. video from that. Um, you know, we read, uh, people purchased honor ribbons and said, you know, I'm riding for so-and-so. And they read the names of those veterans at the event. Mm. And, oh, my gosh, um, it was so amazing to me the number of of people that uh, folks were riding for. That, yeah. Yeah. I get that. Great. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Everyday Badass. And um, we will be with you next week to introduce you to another badass guest. All right, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Everyday Badass. And whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on, I would greatly appreciate if you can download, share, like, write a review, and just continue to support us and listen to these podcasts moving forward. Thanks so much. Thanks.